Con Radio, presented by Wizard World. Radio for geeks. In a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us and shine a light on those who will inspire tomorrow. This is your tribute to comics and pop culture. This is the Canned Air Podcast on Wizard World's Con Radio. Welcome to another episode of Canned Air, a tribute to comics and pop culture right here on Wizard World's Con Radio. I am Jeremy Colley, and I'm alone in the studio as we're taking the week off. Now, typically when we take a day off, we leave you the next three episodes of the Superman radio show from the 1940s. Uh, But we decided to do something a little bit different this time. We have been contemplating pulling some of our older episodes down as they don't really reflect what we're doing now. They uh, just have they're very heavy with old news that uh, nobody really wants to hear anymore. Now, even though most of these episodes do just contain a bunch of old news, uh, there were also a lot of amazing interviews we had with a lot of amazing people uh, throughout those episodes that uh, our con radio listeners haven't got to hear, and maybe a lot of our new listeners haven't heard either. So what we're going to start doing now is every time we take a week off, we're going to be replaying one of the interviews from our old episodes uh, for all of our new listeners. So... This week, we're going to be giving you our very first uh, big interview we ever really had with actor Doug Jones, who's uh, famous for portraying Abe Sapien in the Hellboy movies, uh, the Silver Surfer in Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer, Cochise from the sci-fi series Fallen Skies, and not to mention all the beautiful creatures he brought to life in Pan's Labyrinth. And the list of roles he's played just keeps going and going. This interview took place on May 3rd, 2014, Free Comic Book Day. He was doing a signing at Pack Rat Comics right here in uh, Hilliard, Ohio, uh, where we're located. And uh, after his meet and greet, we uh, picked him up and we went down to a little restaurant called Abner's and uh, had an interview with him over dinner. So uh, as you're listening to this, you're going to hear a lot of ambient noise in the background, uh, forks, uh, plates, children, music. There's a few spots in the interview where it's a little loud, but as the interview progresses, uh, the audio quality gets a lot better. As I'm sure you'll be able to hear in our voices, uh, we were very nervous as, again, this was our first interview, and uh, here we are sitting with the legendary Doug Jones. But My God, what a sweet person he was. Uh, You could not meet a nicer person. Made us feel so very welcome and uh, very comfortable. So uh, without any further ado, here is our interview from May 3rd, 2014, Free Comic Book Day with Doug Jones. Sitting here in Hilliard, Ohio, with the legendary actor and makeup artist, uh, starred in the Hellboy movies as Abe Sapien, uh, was in Pan's Labyrinth as Fawn and Pale Man, was a Silver Surfer in the Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer, Billy Butcherson in Hocus Pocus, all these great movies in Falling Skies, currently on TNT, Coaches. Ladies and gentlemen, the legendary Doug Jones. How are you, Doug? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm 
Well, I'm not. Well, you did. You did said makeup artist, but I'm. I, I've worn oh. a lot of makeups. Yeah, okay. that that the wonderful Oscar-winning makeup artists have put on me. So yes, yes. So there's. Sorry. That. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's all. I just want to make sure people don't don't uh, don't think like he does that too. No, I'm not that talented. I, I, I wish. Hold time to put some makeup on. Exactly. 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 So, uh, uh, so you're wrapping up a meet and greet today. We'll meet and greet at Pack Rat Comics uh, here in Hilliard, Ohio. The, it was Free Comic Book Day, which is yes. a, a worldwide event. I'm told that um, publishers and and comic creators and stores all come together to put out a lot of free issues. Sure. And it's uh, my gosh, the store was, it was the store was so busy all day. It was crowded. It was, <laughs> it was my first time ever doing one of these, and um, and I flew in from uh, from California for it. Well, actually, wow. actually, I flew in from Toronto. Okay. But now I'm going back to California tomorrow. So there you go. That's yeah. a long flight. Well, yeah, that's what I do. I just I, I fly around. That's what it's I. Probably do. nothing to you now. Nothing. Yeah. Travel. It's just I, I I get most of my naps on on airplanes. Yeah. Sure. You know. So, playing in all these movies that are based on comic books, Hellboy, uh, Batman, being in the uh, Fantastic Four movie, are you a fan of comic books yourself? Well, a fan of. Mm, when I, well, y- a yes. Um, I, <laughs> y- but y- you feel more is coming. Um, when I was a, when I was a youngster, I I knew the Archie comics very well. Oh yeah, I read them all the time, uh, and I saw some. I read some Superman, and and I dabbled in Dick Tracy. Oh but that wow! Was, okay. But that was a, but yeah, but I didn't really. I, I wasn't like a, a, a rabid devourer of them. Sure. So when I when I started booking movies as, as an adult as an actor, uh, I had to like kind of research what the, what that source material was when I would book the role. I so see. I, I was not familiar with the Hellboy comics before I got that movie, and uh, I had heard of the Silver Surfer, of course, and then the Fantastic Four, uh, but I had to go back and do some research to get more familiar with him again. Sure. And. Um, which is great. Which is great. When, when you read that source material, it's like you get a, a sense of, of style and character, and uh, and you get a lot from the artwork too. For me, as a, as a visual person, that that uh, where I put so much movement into my characters, right. the artwork uh, that the original person came up with uh, uh, informs a lot of what I do on film. Sure. You graduated from Ball State University, 1982, uh, bachelor degree in telecommunications. So how did you get into miming and everything from telecommunications? How'd that merger happen? The telecommunications thing, that was, it was kind of, that's the title for the major that handled radio and TV broadcasting. Oh, I see. Okay. Right. So uh, my parents would not allow me to major in theater, even though I knew I wanted to be an actor. But, you know, it, good, sensible Indiana parents should not let their kids major in that because <laughs> the, the odds of getting a job and are, you know, slim. So uh, they were like, no, you have to major in something you can actually work in. So I was like, well, maybe oh, what's close is what I was looking for. So radio and TV, yes. And then they changed the major name to telecommunications when I was halfway through my degree. So, I see. Uh, so I, you know, I, I learned how to do all the uh, workings of in front of and behind cameras and microphones for radio and television. Okay. Uh, everything from writing to, uh, you know, reading teleprompters and, right. uh, you know, and directing. Sure. Sure. And all that, all the on-camera, off-camera stuff. So, uh, meanwhile, I lived in a dorm on Ball State's campus. And when I was a freshman, there was a senior that lived in my dorm down the hall. Reed K. Steele was his name. 
and uh, he was a tall, skinny mime guy that ran the mime troupe on campus called Mime Over Matter. Oh, That's funny, okay. you see. Yeah, funny. It's funny. Yeah. I know. <laughs> so, uh, so he would. You know, when I'm when I talk, I flip my hands around. I, I make. I'm very expressive with my facial expressions. I'm very, and the, the long, lanky thing. So he was, he was studying me when I and I wasn't aware of it. When we'd be in the lunchroom or when he you know would watch me walking to the bathrooms he'd be like what is so one day he said to me have you ever heard of an art form called mime and i said oh like pantomime yes come see one of our shows and let's talk after so i did we did and i fell in love with the art form just from seeing their their troupe perform sure here was this you know stage with nothing on it and a bunch of people in black leotards and white faces and gloves on that were making magic happen with no words spoken right you know uh creating worlds and props and things that weren't there and i could see all of it right i was laughing i was crying i was like oh my gosh so that's when i realized that communication and performing can, it, it, it's so much more than just verbal dialogue that comes out of your mouth it's also your entire body communicates your right. your posture your body language your gesturing your facial expression your your demeanor all comes out physically and visually everybody as much as it does verbally so so I think every actor should should round out with that art yeah. form anyway uh, so now it just the mime kind of translates into what I do now in creature suits right it just kind of helps because those have to be so physically aware right. when you're in a, in a makeup or a costume that makes you an otherworldly creature long answer Sorry. No, no you're fine you'd have to stay agile for so many of the different roles you've played, what's your process of keeping yourself in shape for the next role? Uh, well, I, I wish I could tell you, you know, I have a very strict regime and I keep to it. Like, oh, oh, oh. Actually, between, between jobs, I'm kind of a lazy ass. And when I have something coming up, it's like, oh, that's going to be physically demanding. Uh oh, I better get in better shape. Get. I get into, I get, I keep myself in shape out of sheer fear. <laughs> Just sure. that I will fall down on the job or collapse under a heavy thing or something. Right. Um, then the older I get now, I'm 53 now, so it, the fear is even more prevalent because it's like, okay, I'm not 20 anymore. I can do this. I can, so, uh, so I, I stay in, in good shape just because I'm terrified of not doing it. You sure. know, yeah. I understand. Does so the makeup end up keeping you in shape a little bit with it being so heavy sometimes? Well, when you're, if I'm on a job that's very physical, I can I go home at the end of the day feeling like I have had a workout. Right. But especially, uh, you know, if you're playing an otherworldly creature of some sort, the posture and the, the, the stance can be very squatty yeah. for many of them. One of those jobs, it's like you, you absolutely, your, your lower back, your abs, your your thighs are getting a lot of like, uh, you know, those major muscle groups are getting a sure. lot. So yeah, so uh, like when I did the time machine, for instance, way back in the in 2001, we filmed. Oh, wow, I remember that. One. Uh, yeah, I was I the, the lead that. spy Morlock in that. Really? And it was very uh, uh, spindly, squatty characters that had their, you know, our knees were up by our shoulders most of the time. Sure. And getting in and out of that position took some strength when you're in a full heavy prosthetic makeup with mechanics built into the face, arm extensions on, so you're very top heavy, uh, and trying to make that seem organic and agile like you know we're just superhuman right it, that's the tough part is playing a superhuman character when you are a guy in a suit and you have one yeah <laughs> just, you know, it's like oh gosh 
you know, I have to, when the camera rolls, I have to look like I've got all this strength and power and what's, where, where does that come from? Right. And truth is, I can barely get myself from my trailer to the set. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, without, sure. without having somebody help me. Right. And the first time I ever saw you on television or remember you was as Mac Tonight. Ugh. And I, as a child, was a big fan of it. Um, I know that sounds silly, but it was came at a time when like the California raisins were yeah, big, yeah, no, yeah. and uh, a lot of those like the showbiz animatronics. Mm -hmm. It was awesome to see you, uh, or just to see Mac tonight on TV. Uh, how'd that happen for you? Well, that was one of, one of my first. It was one of, one of my early jobs. It was like, like the fourth booking I ever had as an actor. I'd done a couple. Of it was uh, I did like three commercials before that, and it all happened within a, a few short months in 1986. Six. Uh, so I booked the Mac Tonight spot, and, and it was it was a four commercial blast to start off with. A regional campaign that just started in California. Okay. So, but, but as a young actor, with this being like one of my first few jobs, it was like ah, to book four commercials that would be be shooting in one week, and like that was that was a good paycheck for right. me at the stage I was at. And it's McDonald's, it's a huge franchise, but see, even though it was a regional campaign, I knew that, like, okay, well, it'll be a good one. I'll get it. So, and they were trying to boost their, 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 their sales for after 4 p.m., the nighttime crowd. I see. Uh, so, what happened was they aired the first spot, when the clock strikes, hey, half past six, B. And it caught on, like, that's a lot, there were a lot of kids like you that, that fell in love with him. And a lot of adults fell in love with him, too. Yes. He had that Bobby Darren kind of love you, babe, nightclub mm -hmm. kind of guy. He yeah. always reminded me of uh, Ray Charles, Ray too. Ray Charles, the, yeah, right, with the sunglasses on, yeah. the Ray-Bans. At the piano. At the piano, rocking back and forth, <laughs> moving and grooving. So it really did. It was catchy and it caught on. Uh, and so the sales figures did what they what McDonald's wanted them to do. Huge hit. And they um, so they took the campaign nationwide and made more commercials to, for the new com national campaign. Then it went worldwide, and we made more commercials for the worldwide campaign. Wow. And then uh, after the course of three years, I had done 27 commercials as that character. So that was a huge deal for me. Wow. And, and from that came the Happy Meal toys of Mac Tonight in, a, in all the Happy Meals. Uh, then they were all kinds of other products with my image on it as Mac were uh, like sippy cups, uh, uh, wow, uh, lunchbox. Yeah, beach towels. There wasn't any like cartoon or anything like that, was there? I feel like there might have been something I like that. I think they, it seems to me they tried to do a Mac Tonight cartoon. I'm not sure if it hit or not. That's a good question. I, uh, yeah. I don't remember. I don't either. Let me show you what I brought with me real quick, though. Uh oh, I'm about to be embarrassed. <laughs> Did you do any singing? No, on the I mean, they, they, I, I do sing, but they wanted to uh, they wanted to have somebody who sounded more. I think probably closer to the Bobby Darren side. Yeah. I've had this since 1988. I played with it many times. Oh, there it is! <laughs> it's the, one of the Mac Tonight Happy Meal toys, and this is Mac on different forms of transportation. It was it was the whole uh, the vehicle set. This is like a, a ski do or sorry, like a what would you call this? A jet ski. A jet ski. There you go. And there was also a motorcycle. There was a jeep. There was a convertible car. There was a scooter. 
There was a airplane, I think. Oh, yes. I think there was. With wings and little red ones. Yeah. I was always jealous of the neighbor kid who had the motorcycle one. That's the one yeah. I always wanted. But um, I've got the full set at home. I got them all. They're still wrapped in plastic, of course. Because oh wow. I want them to retain their value. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I might have you sign that a little bit later I mean, if that's we can, okay. We can do that. Yes, we can. Awesome. All right, we just finished a chicken salad and BLT sandwich here with Doug. Yes, and I've still got some onion rings crunching, so if you hear if you hear stuff in my mouth, it's good. <laughs> it was a delicious meal, i got to say. <laughs> I do. You'd think I'd have better breeding than that, but no. <laughs> There's food on the table. All right, so it's it's no um, secret that you've done a lot of work with Guillermo del Toro. Yeah. Uh, that, including the Hellboy movies, Pan's Labyrinth. Um with him is it typically a, like a collaborative effort is everything already laid out for you when you get there and how does, how does it work working with him mm. well he is a he is a, a a genius at collaboration and he's a genius on his own he's just a plain genius sure and one thing about a really smart genius person is uh even if they come up with a great idea and a great story to tell uh, movie making is the most collaborative art form there is. As a painter or, a, or an author, you get to sit in the privacy of your own home and in your studio and create things. Right. When you're making a movie, all the departments have to come together. And that means that uh, who's ever guiding that ship, the director of the film, uh, has to pick all those department heads, uh, people that he trusts, and uh, people whose work he knows and and can can guide along. But they, so they all bring something of their own to the table. Sure. That includes his his cast of actors. Uh, so. Um, so with him, it's it's very much uh, he and uh, the movies I've been in. I, I met him on Mimic in 1997. Okay. Uh, and I'm not. Sh that's the one I'm not even sure. I need I need to look these facts up before I do interviews. But uh, I just know that, that then coming back to do the first Hellboy movie five years later, he wrote the script for that. He wrote the script for Pandal's Labyrinth. He wrote the script for Hellboy Two. He co-wrote the script for uh, Crimson Peak that I just finished. Uh, so, so he writes what he directs, and that when you read his scripts, you get a lot of his vision, and you know how he's going to direct it. You know that it's going to be directed as you read it. Uh, right. there, there's not going to be someone getting a, their own interpretation on it. Um, as will happen sometimes when you have a script that's taken over by another director, and they're like, "Well, here's what I want to tell," sure. and they rewrite on the day and whatever. Um, uh, Guillermo, you, what what you read is like you can envision like, "Oh, this is going to be great because you know," right. uh, which I did with Pan's Labyrinth when I read that. It was like, "Oh my gosh, the most beautiful thing I'd ever read in my life." It was a wonderful yeah. story. It was yeah. awesome. And knowing yeah. that he, yeah, thank you, and, and knowing that he was going to direct it meant that uh, like what I just read will come out on film vividly as I as I envisioned it in my own little sick mind so uh, uh, so there's that the script itself informs quite a bit then uh, uh, Guillermo has this shorthand with actors where he um, he he, he can, can size up a person uh, faster, better, deeper than anyone else I've ever known. He he gets he kind of figures out who he's talking to, uh, and and with his actors he figures out what the control panel is uh, on you, um, what uh, what buttons are created with you that he can push to get a certain reaction out of, or you know what how is he going to direct you on the day? And I noticed that when we were doing Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, when uh, when he would direct me and Ron Perlman and Selma Blair very differently from each other you know sure. we, we would uh, 
different things would motivate each of us because of our personality types, you know? Right. So uh, he, his demeanor, Guillermo's demeanor would, would change when he would talk to each one of us, uh, knowing that if I need to get a reaction out of you or a an action out of you or an emotion out of you that I'm not getting yet, here's how I can get that out of you. And so he dealt with Selma and Ron and I very differently from each other because of who we are and, and what he knows about us as people. That's a genius that knows how to sure, do that. Yeah, it exactly. really is. Um, so as far as like building a character from the ground up with him, the script, an early meeting with him comes into play where he'll tell me what quirks or what kind of vibe this character should have. Uh, but, but that conversation can be very short. Uh, for Abe Sapien in the Hellboy movies, he saw my demo reel uh, when I came in to meet him for that one. That uh, On my demo reel was the, was the uh, gentleman from the Hush episode of Buffy. Oh, yeah. A clip of that. Okay. And my hands were very fluid in that, and my head was very tilty and very gentlemanly and very poised and postured and polite. And he saw that clip and he said, that, something like that is great for Abe. <laughs> so I saw, okay, and that was like on my day one. Right? You know, I, I didn't even have the job yet. Right. Uh, the next thing I did was, uh, was study my fish at home uh, in my little goldfish tank. Really? Yeah. And uh, just seeing how, like, I had the fish at, at, in my house because of their calming influence. They're, they're, uh, they're very, they're very like yes. tranquil to watch. Yes. Abe Sapin was a very tranquil calming member of the BPRD team. So I wanted to translate what I saw in that fish tank into the character for the B, B, for the team. That's amazing. So uh, looking at how the goldfish heads kind of went, you know, dart, and, and then their bodies would flow very gently behind in the, in the water, and their fins would kind of just kind of be very, very... Like a dance almost. Loose. It's a dance. It's an angelic yeah. dance they do. Uh, I saw it kind of in one of my test costume fitting, uh, makeup test, uh, I didn't know I was being watched. I was, I, they, had, they had the head on, they were just trying the head and the, and the neck piece on. They were building the body one piece at a time, and so I went in for several, several fittings to make that character happen. And um, in one of my early fittings, I was standing in front of a big full-length mirror in the, in the back of the shop at Spectral Motion in Burbank, California. And I'm kind of looking at myself through the pinholes, like the, the tear ducts that I had. So I, I didn't have much vision. Sure. And so what I could see in this full-length mirror, I kind of started, you know, moving my head and darting it a little bit, and then doing that, and then seeing what happened with my with my hands, with their being very, uh, you know, very fluid and very, uh, uh, you know, catching the water and sort of sure. fanning out and back and forth. And off, I didn't know Guillermo was there that day, but he'd stopped in to ha have a look at what we were doing. And he goes, that, keep that, I like that. So that's all we ever talked about Abe Sapien's movement. From uh, That's all we ever said. He saw something, he liked it, I knew what he meant, because he likes that attitude, that physical attitude. I will right. I will keep that in the character, and so that's all we ever spoke about it. Uh, that so it. that's a shorthand we have developed. Uh, my, one of my favorite shorthand stories with him was in Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. I played three characters in that movie. And this is, this is again, a director who now loves working with me, bless his heart, for whatever reason. I, it's not, I don't think it's because I'm good. I think it's because I keep saying yes. Um, uh, I doubt but, that. Well, you're kind. <laughs> um, but he, uh, uh, he had me play the Angel of Death character as well. Uh, and also a third character called the Chamberlain. And if you remember the Hellboy 2, our evil nemesis was um, was Prince Nuada, the uh, the elf from the underworld, yes. who the badass long-haired white elf. Exactly. 
Um, and he, at the, near the beginning of the movie, he goes back down to the underworld to confront his father, the elf king, and to get a piece of the crown from the, the dad that will help complete his, you know, world domination power plot. Right. So, but in order to get to the king, he had to pass through the, 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 the chamberlain who holds the, the, the chamber doors closed. And I kind of, I'm I like the butler. I'm the king's butler, basically. And of course, this is being a fantasy world, Guillermo had them design this crazy looking, squared off headed, you know, very pale skinned character called the Chamberlain with, with these two little blinky eyes that were way up here, mechanical, uh, higher than my forehead. And um, so it was big and long, and I had these long arm extensions with, uh, with very spindly long fingers that, that were longer than skinnier than my own, and they were puppeteered by somebody off camera. And I had I was up on blocks, so I was like much taller than I, I was about seven feet tall. And um, so, Guillermo said to me, uh, all he said was he, uh, you know, he, since you can't even you can't see what I'm doing at home here, but uh, uh, he put his hands out to the sides of his face, like sort of fanned out. And he said, Doug, for the Chamberlain, I just kind of want to see him. He he's sort of like a. Uh, I just want him to be. Uh, Ew. <laughs> like that. That's all he said. He made that sound effect, and he brought his fingers together in like a very like sort of uh, almost a prissy kind of a way. Right. And so I was like, oh, and a sound effect and a motion of his hands. I was like, done, good, got it. Thanks for this talk. Right. So that was that was all we ever discussed about the Chamberlain's movement and demeanor and attitude and persona. So wow. uh, so that is that is a gift of a shorthand that we have with each other. Um, we just did the same thing on, on Crimson Peak. I played a, it's a great haunted house story uh, uh, set in Victorian England, and uh, it's going to be beautiful and opulent and drippy and wonderful uh, and Can't wait to terrifyingly scary, and that's where I come in. So I'm not allowed to tell you what I played exactly, but it's a haunted house story, so what do you think I played? <laughs> okay, so uh, <laughs> so that was also more of a, you know, on the day, one, one day his direction to me was, Dog, your hands. Give me more uh, spaghetti. <laughs> okay, <laughs> got it. Got it. Ding. Done. You know exactly what that means I when he says. Of course, of course. That's it's amazing. Do <laughs> <laughs> you ever scare yourself seeing yourself in the makeup once you get it on? Hmm. Just kind of believe that. Hey, that's me. Right. Well, I never scared myself. Um. Hmm. Because you know. You're watching the makeup come on you one piece at a time. Mm. I've seen concept drawings ahead of time too. So I, I know what what the original artwork was that the, the character's based on, or whatever. But one of the the best reaction I ever got gave I ever got I ever gave in a makeup test fitting was was the Hellboy one, the first Abe Sapien test fitting that we did. When it was full body and they were going to bring it all together for the first time, colors, shapes, everything. I was in makeup that day for at least eight hours. If it wasn't, no, it was more like nine or ten. Um, and, you know, the, the makeup, I get asked all the time, hey, you know, what's the longest makeup you've ever been in? It's always a test makeup. Because we're not filming that day, they don't have to get me on set by a certain time, so they can take their time nice to tinker and go, oh, I like that stripe there. Oh, I like that color there. Airbrush, ooh, that blends well, or that doesn't blend well. Or, or I gotta get that edge down. They can take the time to do that. Right. So, my Abe Sapien test fitting day, 
was at the at the creature shop in Burbank uh, at Spectral Motion, and I had spent so it was getting so long, and I'd been standing for a lot of it because they had to make up. I was wearing sh black shorts, and they had to make up everything else: from my legs, my arms, my torso, my face and neck and head. And sure. All of it had to be covered with something. So that took forever, and took like you know three makeup artists uh, a lot of time. So half the time I was I was aimed away from the mirrors. I was I had somebody working behind me. I wasn't able to sit down. I had to stand and hold a squat for them to get you know between my thighs or whatever to, right. to paint things. Um, so you get very intimate with your makeup artist, by the way. Okay. So. Uh, so after the last bits were going on and the and the and the, the overall like uh, proportions, I hadn't seen all that really come together in the mirror yet. Finally, we're done. We're about to walk out into the, into the main part of the shop, and Guillermo had come to the to the shop to to have the, for the great unveiling of me and my first test makeup as Abe. And uh, I turned around and caught myself in the mirror, and I was like, Oh, oh my gosh goosebumps and I teared up I really? never teared up looking at a makeup in my life until I looked at Abe for the first time I was like this so I said to Steve Wang who designed uh, my my practical effects makeup look for that he designed it and, and it was it took a team it takes a village to make that come together but but Steve Wang it was Steve Wang's concept that that, uh, that from the comic books to to film of course Mike Mignola drew the original pictures in the comic books right but uh, Steve Wang was there and I said Steve this is the most beautiful character I have ever been in my life. Oh my gosh! Thank you, thank you, thank you. It was beautiful. And I was, and my lip was quivering. I was just so emotional about it. That's so awesome. yeah, yeah. You definitely have a passion for what you do. Well, I, I, I guess I do. The passion is very much helped by by being able to work with the best artists in the world. Everything from makeup to directors to writers to editors to musicians and score, music scores and visual effects. I mean, it does take a village to make a movie. And uh, sure. so uh, uh, I've, I've, I've been very blessed to work with the best in the world. I really have. It's amazing. Yeah. All right. You've also been in some music videos. Um, wow. Yes. Uh, let me see. Where is it? Madonna's Bedtime Story, mm -hmm. Red Hot Chili Peppers, Soul to Squeeze, and Marilyn Manson. I don't like the drugs, but the drugs like me. Yes. So what, how did this happen? What was it like right. working with these people? Well, especially me. You see me, I'm like this, yeah. I, I, you know, I'm an average middle-aged white guy, and I'm like, wait, what am I doing in a Marilyn Manson video? <laughs> well, first of all, uh, uh, whoever, whoever was directing that Marilyn Manson video, uh, uh, came to my agency at the time and said, yeah, we'd love to get Doug Jones. Yeah, and this is, that was back in, I think, 90, 98, 99, 2000. I'm not sure when that was. So uh, I was not a, a I, I, I didn't have any element of fame at the time. So I got a lot of referral jobs, people who'd worked with me, people who knew me from the creature effects world, whatever. Sure. Uh, so somebody who was involved in casting that, that music video came looking for uh, me. And we'd like to get Doug. I didn't have to audition for it. Just, you know, Marilyn Manson video. So my agent called and asked me that. Do you want to be in a Marilyn Manson video? And I said, oh, great. Uh, sure. Because I, I, I like music videos because it's a different style of filming. You're filming vignettes. And you don't have to worry about, about context and story as much. Yeah. Sure. There's not as much of a through line. It's more about the imagery and the, uh, the, 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 the snippet moments. Right. 
So it's it's uh, it's an, it can be an, an easier shooting day, but it can also be a very artsy shooting day. You know, when you, when you worry about colors and shapes more than than uh, storyline so much, right. that's a, it's a different animal, and I liked it. So I said, sure, I I, I love this. Now who's who's I don't know who Marilyn is. Is is she a good singer? Is she <laughs> is she what style is she? I was saying, not realizing that Marilyn was a fella. You had never really heard. Yeah, I hadn't never. hadn't heard of him. Wow. Um, yeah. Well, we, that's not my style of music. Sure. You know, it's a, it's a bit rough. It's a bit hard, and it draws a crowd that I am not. That's what intrigued me about it, because Why Doug Jones, the nicest guy on the face of the planet, in a Marilyn Manson video, it, it just didn't add up. So that's why I was curious. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, <laughs> the, uh, the, the the that video was um, the, the the basic vignette storyline that was going on in, in my bits. I was one of many people who had, it was set a little bit in the future with what television has done to us. Right. And so these people had, had enormous eyes. That had, yes. So we had prosthetic eyes put on our face. And I think that's what they thought of me because I, I had been known at the time for, still for wearing a lot of prosthetics. Sure. So, so that was the bit. Uh, they just showed, they showed families and we uh, uh, sitting in living rooms and, and people affected by what, what, uh, what watching a screen all day has done to us. Right. Uh, so it was kind of quick and dirty one-day shoot. Uh, I was also like a one-day shoot for uh, the Madonna video, the bedtime story video. And that was another one that like... They wanted me because I was tall and skinny. They wanted two tall and skinny people in uh, smoking jacket style bathrobes to be sitting on a bench in a fish pond of water, holding hands with each other. And then our heads were replaced with hand mirrors that had Madonna's face on them. So, so my head was replaced Whoa. with a hand mirror with Madonna's face on it, as was the girl with me. There was a very tall, skinny girl that was in this with me. And we affected, the, we mirrored each other's, and we just sat there holding hands together very delicately with these hand mirrors. It was a very artsy video. If you if you watch the, the Bedtime Story uh, song, it's on her Bedtime Stories album. Bedtime Stories yeah. album. Yeah, and, and I forget, the, the, the music video was, was done in a style of art that that, had, that's, that mirrored somebody's paintings, and, I, and I, I should remember who that famous painter was, but I can't. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it was, it was very, very stylized and artsy and lovely. Uh, whether you like Madonna or not, it was a really cool video. Sure. Uh, and then the Red Hot Chili Peppers was was that was now that was a fun one. Uh, that was um, um, Soul to Squeeze. Yes. Squeeze, so it was a slower song of theirs. Sure. That I loved. One of their best. It was a good one, right? Uh, I got a bad disease. Boom, boom, dun, dun, boom, boom. Boom. Right, exactly. Good baseline. <laughs> that took me a little bit. To yeah, yeah, yeah. I know the name, but I couldn't think of the tune. Right. And uh, so. I got to meet Anthony Kiedis and Flea and uh, oh, cool. and Chad, the drummer. They, and now, at, when we made that video, there was only three of them because oh, their the fourth guy had already left and they hadn't replaced him yet when we made the video. I see. So, uh, so there was love, and I, uh, the three that I met were all delightful, lovely, laid back, easy to get along with, and people you'd hang out with in college. They were just so great. Yeah. And uh, how cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I, Anthony Kiedis asked me at one point, he had a great idea because they, they just, they all loved me. And Chad, the drummer, <laughs> wanted to, wanted to do a shot. Again, imagery is everything in a music video. Uh, our storyline was uh, we were a traveling circus, a traveling uh, tent circus from the 1930s. So, uh, so that was all done in black and white and, 
And it's just you, you throughout the music video, you're following this 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 band of, of carnies. Sure. And I was the contortionist. Yeah. Okay. So uh, then I wore a top hat through a lot of it, and you know suspenders and like you know stretchy pants and whatever. And uh, so uh, at one point, Anthony Kiedis had this great idea, like, oh, wouldn't it be great if Chad picked up our buddy Doug here by one arm and one leg and swung him around like in circles, <laughs> so I'd be airborne flying. I'm right. like, yeah, it's a great, it's a great idea. Yeah. Can we put some mats on the floor? You're yeah. right, because if I flew off and hit, you know, scrape my, my face with gravel or something, right. been, that would have been interesting. Uh, they ended up going like, yeah, that's a. I forget who the director was now on this, but uh, it was like, yeah, that's a. Well, you know, let's 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 keep that on the on the back burner for later. Let's make sure we get the shots we already have planned, and we'll get. We'll see if we get to it. We never got to it, which is just fine. It's fine. But I, I was complimented that they thought of me to do a little something special. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and you know who was in that video too? Was Chris Farley. Yeah. Really? Yes. Really? Yes, he was. He was. He was our uh, our. Uh, what do you call it? The ring, ring master. Oh, okay. And uh, but you know, but it was, but it was all behind the scenes while we're traveling and setting up. That's all the shots you saw. You never saw us in full performance mode. Okay. So he was a cigar smoking, like you know. I'll have to check that out. So yeah, did you get yeah. to meet Chris Farley? I did, and he was lovely. He was a really super nice guy. A lot, a lot of those, you know, big broad comedian loud people uh, that you know from film and TV. When you meet them in person, they're often very quiet and docile and... They just let it all out in performance. They get it out. Yeah. They have their outlet. And Weird Al Yankovic's like that. I did uh, five episodes of his t kid's TV right. show called The Weird Al Show on Saturday mornings. And, uh, you know, in the skits we were in, was like a, it was like a fake uh, exercise show on TV. And so we showed up in five episodes. And um, and he was like this exercise instructor, and he was crazy. And he was loud, loud, loud. Oh, you were in a big blonde wig, and he was like, it was nuts. And then uh, you know, between takes and at lunch break and whatnot, he was just like almost boring. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Sure. It's because he gets it out of his system. Maybe yeah. and, and, and on a day like that too, a comedian needs to save it for the camera too. You know. Right. Unless you're Robin Williams, and then he, <laughs> he, he just goes time. all day. Yeah. Exactly. 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 All right. I've heard that. I've heard this story. I've heard you tell a story. Uh oh, am I gonna tell it again? <laughs> if you would, because it's priceless. Uh -oh. I don't think Jack's heard it here. Uh oh, we'll Jack. <clears throat> um, happened on the set of the Fantastic Four: Rise of the Silver Surfer. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Could you regale us with that story once more? This would be the one on a cold on a cold night in downtown Vancouver. In a tent. In a tent. Yes. With Jessica Alba getting a foot rub. Okay. Well, oh gosh. The Silver Surfer was a, a full head-to-toe prosthetic makeup. I was glued into a face mask and a body suit that, that was all glued to me. It made me a beautiful... I was, was talking about beautiful proportions. Hello. That's the best body I've ever had in my life. <laughs> then it was glued on, unfortunately. Um, so uh, being tucked into my rubber suit, uh, uh, we were filming downtown Vancouver, and it was cold out. It was in the winter months. And uh, it was a night shoot we were doing, so it's even colder. So between shots or between takes, we would run to a little heating tent where our cast chairs were set up, and we had a little space heater in there. And it was like, you know, they're being taken, trying to keep us from shivering on camera. Right. Well, I go back uh, and sit in my little chair. I'm tucked in the corner of the tent with my chair. On my right side was uh, Yoan Griffith's chair, Mr. Fantastic, uh, who played Reed Richards. So he comes in and sits down. Then Jessica comes in, comes in right after him and sits down in her chair right to my left. So I'm sandwiched between the two of them. And I'm in the corner, so they're sort of like 
uh, uh, at a right angle from okay. each other, you know? Right, right. Um, so Jessica, and, and on a movie set like this, we all get to know each other really. You become a big family. Mm-hmm. So uh, Jessica and, and, and uh, Yoan had been through a lot together. This is their second movie together, of course. So they know each other really well. And so the familiarity means that she throws her foot into his lap and says, I think you need to massage my foot now, big brother. And then he's like, oh, dear. So he dutifully takes her foot and, and is like massaging it and, and rubbing some kinks out. And uh, her leg is draped across my lap to, over to, to Yoan. So I'm kind of <clears throat> not a good time to be locked in when you feel a fart coming on, <laughs> right? Right? So now, I, so I'm faced with, okay, do I break up the love fest to say excuse me and exit the tent? Or do I just think to myself, hey, I'm in a rubber suit. <laughs> Who's going to smell this, right? Right. I'm going to take my chances. So I sat there and I did the little lean off to one side. Nobody noticed. No, no, I went undetected. And I let a quiet one out. I was like... Sold. Good. <laughs> until until I look at Yoan Griffith and he's sitting there with rubbing her foot and then all of a sudden he stops for a minute, looks up, his expression changes ever so slightly, and then he goes back to rubbing her foot again, <laughs> as a gentleman would do without saying anything. At that very moment, Jessica looks at him and says, you smell ass, don't you? (sighs) Which means I did not go undetected, and they're talking about my ass. So I... uh so I, uh, uh, well, thank heaven, though, uh, Jessica saved the day when she said, you know, why do they have to park those porta potties so close to this tent? Oh, I don't know. I'm like, yes, Jessica, why? We should write a letter to someone and get that fixed. Thank you. For, just you know, right. It's not, I'll, I'm going to talk to somebody for you. Mm. How embarrassing oh. was that? But yet. Yeah. I'm sorry I had to make you relive that. No, but I, no, I, no. I, you know what? Yoan Yo- had never heard that story. I mean, he, he, he <laughs> we were at Dragon Con together last year, and we were doing a Silver Surfer uh, a Fantasy Four sequel panel uh, at Dragon Con in, in Atlanta. So it's just he and I sitting on a, on a at a table with microphones and our moderator and somebody from the audience said, um, "What's the what's the weirdest thing that ever happened on the set?" And I said, "I got a story." <laughs> It'll top that, uh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, "Yo, and you may not remember this happening. I hope you don't, but you're about to relive it with me right now." So I told, and he was leaning. Oh, I've never seen that boy laugh so hard. He remembered though. He remembered the the the, the moment. He didn't remember me farting. <laughs> so so now he does. Now I, I, I reminded it him. It wasn't the Porta John. It was <laughs> Doug. Dougie. I've heard in past interviews that you would love to play Jack Skellington in a Broadway ad- adaptation of Nightmare Before Christmas. Have you had any interested parties come in to you since you've heard them? <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? That's why I keep mentioning it in interviews and hoping that someone will come and say, Doug, I've got millions of dollars and I'm a friend of Tim Burton's. Let's make this happen. Um, I'm not sure who owns I think, does Tim Burton own that property? Uh, I'm not sure. I don't know. I I really don't know. Well, anyway, yes. The the answer, the short answer is yes. Really? (laughs) That I would love to. No. Oh. (laughs) I mean, the short answer is yes, I would love to. No, no one has, in power, has said yes, let's do it. I see. I think that A Nightmare Before Christmas would make a great Broadway show. Yes. Yeah, and I would love more than anything to play Jack Skellington. Uh, I believe I'm built for it, and I believe I can sing. Oh, okay. Yeah, I believe, you I believe can sing it too. I think I, I, think I, can, <laughs> I can spin a yarn on, 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 on the musical front. 
I'd come see it. That's for sure. Yeah, that's very kind of you. <laughs> well, from your lips to God's ears, we'd have they would have to um, develop a, a, a mask that would work for it. Because I don't know, you've seen walk around Jack Skellington's at Disneyland. It's kind of it's a tough one to pull off to build. Right, I've heard of. Because you know, if you're stuck inside a. I've heard that Disneyland um, Jack Skellington has the round head, but when it comes down to the mouth, it's the actual actor's mm-hmm. mouth. Right. right. Mm-hmm. So. So it doesn't mirror the, what what you saw in the animated movie quite exactly. so much. But yeah. So I don't know, and for broad for Broadway, you'd have to have something that, that doesn't take five hours to apply every day, because that would that would be that would get really old really fast. Yeah. Right. Something you can just slip right in and out of. It'd be nice. It'd be nice. So sure. yeah, yeah, it's it's worth uh, it's worth investigating. I don't know. All right. I've never done Broadway before. That would be a great way to get acquainted. You definitely with it. should. Ah, you know, yeah. <laughs> I, well, that would that would be a that would be a full dive, I think, <laughs> into the deep end. <laughs> All right, I've heard um, rumors you're going to be playing the operator. Oh. And the upcoming movie called is it called the operator? Yeah, or can you talk about it now? Awesome. Yeah. What can you tell us about it? Well, um, uh. It's based on Marble Marble Hornets. Hornets. Marble Hornets is a very popular web series with millions of hits. Um, Marble Hornets was inspired by uh, was Marble Hornets was created by a, a, a bunch of kids uh, in um, Alabama that uh, that made this web series about this 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 quiet faceless sort of character that, that just shows up in places. Right. And it's terrifying because he's always so it quiet really and, and you don't know what his <laughs> intentions are and he just kind of like haunts uh, haunts this haunts the, every scene he's in. And of course, uh, what inspired them to make this this character, the operator, was the, was the Slenderman legend. Sure. Uh, and I had to look all that up, but um, it was a friend of mine, uh, John Soares, that I'd done another, another web series for called uh, The Danger Element. Oh. The last episode is yet to yet to come out, but uh, but I love doing that. Oh my gosh, I like web series. They're kind of fun. Right. They're fun. They're fun, and and and. and the filmmakers can can go off the charts and do whatever they want to make without a studio over over them. They they don't have much money. That's that's the, the downside. But the creativity is is rampant in web series if they're if you're dealing with the right filmmaker. So John Soares, who I done the Danger Element for, sent me an email saying, Doug, I don't know if you have ever seen a web series called Marble Hornets, but here's the, a link to episode one. Start and watch. So I was like, oh, okay. Well, I, and I, I normally don't have time for this kind of thing, but I, oh yeah, I clicked. I went to, if John Soares is telling me to watch this, I, I must watch. And oh my gosh, I, I you know, you're watching a, a handheld camera, sort of like found footage-looking thing. Sure. Very, very videotapey looking. And I'm thinking, oh, this, how good this can this be? But yet, I was sucked in so fast and so. Uh, so like like eyes glued onto it. It's easy to get sucked into it. I yeah. I started just watching the first entry and just oh I was hooked. I couldn't put it down. Right, right, right. It so very freaky. Very freaky. <laughs> the same thing. Uh, so I realized like when I saw the Slenderman-y sort of looking character, the operator, I realized oh now I know why why my attention is being drawn to this. So it turns out that the, uh, John Sawyer, my friend, had had an internet connection sort of uh, relationship with the filmmakers in Alabama. They were admirers of each other's work. Oh wow! And so, uh, so Tim Sutton of the team in Alabama, the operator team, the Marvel Hornets team, uh, got a hold of me on the Twitter. I love the Twitter, oh. and, and he sent he sent me a message and like, hey, just like. Hope you like our stuff. I'm like, oh my gosh, I love Marvel Hornets. Ah! So we're right. going back and forth on Twitter, 
and then and they had originally wanted me to come down to Alabama to do you know a few episodes of their web series and, and I was thinking like ooh well uh, it's gonna I, for me to get on a plane and leave town it's gonna that's gonna cost a little bit sure. uh, just because of my uh, my time is uh, I wish I had more time to give away like that but I just don't right so um so then I got a message from him later, like months went by, and he's like, oh, you know what, hey, hang on, uh, uh, maybe we'll, we'll visit that idea later, but right, because there's, there's, there might be a movie in the works. Oh. I was like, oh, oh, okay, well, that's, yeah. That's a different so story. So sure enough, then, uh, yeah, um, uh, Mosaic, a production company in L.A. that brought you, like, a lot of big movies, like, a lot of uh, Will Ferrell movies. Oh, okay. Um, Jimmy Miller. Is the 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 head of that production company? He's Dennis Miller's brother. Oh, okay. Um, and they're so they, they're a management company that handles a lot of talent, and they also produce movies. So they were the ones that we were interested in making a movie version of Marble Hornets. And I'm like, oh my gosh, well that's a pretty big deal now. It's turning into a big deal. Right. Uh, so. So they did indeed. Uh, so it was because of the, the kids in Alabama referring my name to the production company in L.A. saying, we really want Doug Jones for the, the operator character. And so, of course, they looked me up and go, oh, my gosh. And so Jimmy, Jimmy Miller was a big fan of mine, apparently. Right. And so it worked out really, really well that, like, everybody knew who everybody was and everybody was happy to be involved with everybody else's business. So right. it was really good. Um, you were meant to play the operator. I guess I was. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, um, it, so the movie will, will give you a very much a vibe of the Marvel Hornets web series. But still handheld camera found footage uh, sort of look. Uh, and, and, I, and I did... The, the what you're supposed to do as that character. I stood in bushes. I stood in doorways. I stood in down hallways. I, I stood a lot. But then, of course, uh, as the movie progresses and, 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 and comes to its climax, you'll realize what, I'm, what I've actually been doing this whole time. And that's the, uh, that's the spin on it that, that, that maybe the web series didn't touch on. So they, they had their, the, the movie has its own, its own life. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited to see it. I That's can't... what I can tell you for now. And hopefully it'll be coming out in the fall of this year, 2014. That's what they're aiming for. It's, it's in the canon shot. They might want to do a couple of reshoots uh, to pick up shots to get some, some scenes filled in better. And that's all I know for now. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. I cannot wait to yeah, see yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cannot wait. I couldn't believe you were coaching from Fallen Skies when they first came up. Was it on the end of season two? Yeah, when he landed, he yeah. came out. And then I found out it was you. I was blown away because I love that series. I've, I'm waiting for the next season to come out. Oh, which, well, thank you. This <laughs> is very soon, yeah. Soon. Uh, uh, well, I, uh, yes, my character was introduced at the end of season two, but that was not me stepping off the, the spaceship. Oh, really? That was actually a CG version of me. Okay. They hadn't cast oh, me yet. Hadn't, really? They haven't even called me yet. Yeah. Right. <laughs> they, they just. Uh, I think they were they introduced the character with like a he steps out of the, out of the, the spaceship and makes a pose and just stands there yeah. and they fade it. to black and they roll the credits like yeah. dun 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 cliffhanger exactly <laughs> alright so it, then they found out the show was picked up for season 3 then they had to start going okay now who are we going to cast <laughs> Is this right. so Todd Masters of Masters Effects uh, they, they created they created all the aliens on the show the Ashveni and the Skitters oh wow uh, uh, he uh, he got a hold of me on the Facebook. Again, these social medias are great, great, uh, you handy know. Handy devices, aren't they? They are handy tools to, <laughs> yeah. Now, Todd and I knew each other from before. We, He had worked on the original, he'd come in and, and, and worked on the Mac Tonight campaign for McDonald's, really? the commercial campaign, many years before. So we knew of each other for all these years. And in the creature effects makeup indus uh, industry, 
Um, my name had been passed around so much that all those guys knew me, uh, even if they hadn't worked with me before. So, so Todd had, had worked with me like in the late 80s, and but we had seen each other at social events here and there in the, over the years, but never really worked together again until he calls me or he got hold of me on Facebook and say, hey, uh, we're discussing a new character for Falling Skies. Do you know the show? Are you familiar with it? Would you be interested? And, you know, before I before I pitch any further with the producers, so I wrote back to him and said, yes, I would. I was already a fan of the show myself as well. Mm-hmm. And I uh, so uh, I said, I would love to have a look. What are you talking about? Yeah. So I went in into his shop in, uh, in L.A. and um, saw the designs and was like, oh, my gosh, this is beautiful and alien-y looking. Right. Sort of like a, a mix of, of E.T. and Abe Sapien together, sort mm-hmm. of. Like, and he also has that sort of intelligent, uh, you know, the, 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 the being with all the answers. And They've been around. He's here to help, and he's here to, yeah. So um, I like his demeanor, I like his, his addition to the to the, the, all these poor people just on Falling Skies have been one one bad incident after another. It's like, yeah. can't these people ever get a break? Is the question you keep asking. So now having a friend fallen from uh, from outer space who has history with the Badashvili aliens that have taken over Earth. They took over our planet centuries ago, and we've been chasing them around the the universe ever since then, battling them and fighting them and and liberating other planets that they've tried to to control and take over. So, you know, we're sort of like, uh, and and the question remains, why? Why would we go to that much trouble to help other planets? What's what's in it for us? Right, right. So that's the question that you were left with. we're here to help, but why? Right. Our, do we have an ulterior motive? It's almost a love-hate relationship towards the end of the season three, I think. Yeah, wait, wait. Well, as season three progressed, yeah, well, my uh, my character Cochise uh, became very friendly with Tom Mason, played by Noah Wiley, and uh, you know, as the leader of my people and him as the leader of his people, we got to know each other and and and, and have like a cultural exchange. Even I got right. to learn about these humans. And in that last final episode of the season uh, is when the mothership, my mothership lands and my dad's on it with the the main commander. And you don't know that that my dad is the commander. Uh, And uh, so, um, and that's when it's revealed that our ultimate plan all along was, uh, was to collect all these humans up and put them in a safe camp somewhere, like a, almost like a concentration camp, but just keep them out of harm's way. And we were going to, we were going to ship them off to Brazil and hold them there while we fought off the Ashveni. And uh, and that's where, where the, and so, you know, the w- Will Patton's character, uh, Colonel Weaver and, and Tom Mason were like, what, you wanna what? <laughs> you know, we're people, we don't get shipped off to, yeah. you know, put us behind bars while you fight for us. It's our fight. And so we were like, you know, and, and, but from our perspective, it's like, guys, we've been at this for centuries. I was born on a ship in battle with the Ishveni. We know what we're doing. Trust us. It's for your own protection, but the, the humans weren't having it. So there was a bit of a rift. Yeah. Uh, but by the end of that season finale episode, um, you saw I gave everybody their, their guns back. And I set them free. Mm-hmm. You don't have to go to Brazil, but please don't stay here. <laughs> get, get out of harm's way while, while we fight this fight. Uh, so season four starts June 22nd on TNT, Sunday nights All right. at, at 10 p.m. Uh, Coming right up. Yes. And this year it's 12 episodes instead of 10. So I it's going to be a little, little, little bit longer. Uh, it'll take you from, from you know, um, late June into, into hopefully late uh, August or early September. And... Um, 
So, uh, and this this year is going to be all completely different again. As season, as the episode one opens, season four. Within the first five minutes, you're going to be like, oh, my gosh. Really? And again, can't these people get a break? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, it's I, when I read the script for the first episode, I was like smacking my forehead going, what on? I don't even recognize the show. Oh, yeah. my. So by, so by the end of episode one, you're going to be like feeling really bad for everybody and uh, and wonder where are the Volm. My, my, character, my race is called the Volm. Um, but I, I do make one visit in the first episode to explain to Tom Mason where we've been, what we're doing, and uh, and the tag. You know, the bottom line for me is that Earth is not our only battlefield with the Ishveni. We had to, we have other battles to fight, and our own our our own people were at risk. So we had to fly off and, and fight a battle on another planet somewhere else in the universe. And that left the humans a bit defenseless for a minute. Mm. And oops, sorry, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's gonna it's gonna get ugly really quick in season four, and everybody goes a little bit cray cray. Yeah. Uh, uh, the characters you've come to know, like uh, like uh, Ann Mason, who plays uh, Noah Wiley's love interest on yeah. the show, the Doctor, Doctor Mason. She's been like this, you know, this caregiving doctor person. And this season, she is a badass mofo, you know, really? like gun toting, you know. Sure. Chick with guns, and she's great. Yeah, it was really nice for her to be able to to switch it up and play something different this year. And uh, Seychelle Gabriel, who plays Lourdes on the show, who who is also a doctor on the show. Yeah. She was like the young intern that, that learned everything from Anne Mason. She has become more of like a, a hippie devotee of 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 this new entity that we're not sure of. Uh, we have uh, Tom and Anne. Had a baby on the show last year that was half alien. It was oh, revealed. Right, Remember? Yeah. Oh, yeah. really? Oh, yeah. Half human, half alien DNA. Mm -hmm. Not that far yet. Right. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, you'll, you'll get there. And so, anyway, and it was maturing rather really quickly fast. for a baby. Yeah. yeah. So you're going to see where she's come. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty quickly. Now she's matured even more than you think. <laughs> By How the long time. after season three did it? Does it take place? Is it a year after? Uh, well, uh, the first the first five minutes of the show uh, is going to be. Mm, maybe maybe a month or so after after season three ended, and then we jumped to about four months later. Okay. So and that that's when you'll find out what something bad happens right at the beginning of the show, and then you'll jump to four months later and see how that bad has has revealed itself to everybody. We're all going to be uh, in isolation from each other in a little uh, in different for different reasons. Mm. Different reasons. Uh, isolation is sort of a theme this year for the, for this okay. season. Um, and what happens to everybody when they're when they're separated from their support group? We all go a little bit crazy, mm -hmm. no? Uh, except for Cochise, my character. I'm still calm, collected, and cool. Uh, I have a small recon team left here on Earth while my while the mothership flew off to fight another battle. I have a few soldiers with me, but I'm. Uh, it's just we're here incognito. The Ishveni don't know that we're still here, and so I'm. We're kind of we've while everyone's sort of like isolated in captivity away from each other. Uh, my Volm guys and I are kind of hiding out in the woods with hoods on, uh, so they, wow. we're not spotted from the air. So there you go. And we make we make frequent visits to the humans to say, hey, everything's okay, we're still here. And we're, we're in communication with the mothership sometimes. So it, so it's like, it's spotty. It's just spotty what happens. So yeah, the season will open up with just when you think they got a break, they didn't. They don't have hey. a break. <laughs> mm. Can't wait. But, but victory, victory does is on the way. Victory's on the way. I can promise you that. Now that I've finished filming season four, there's hope. There's hope. I can't wait to see it. Yeah.
You have your own book. Ooh, my. Mime very own book. Mime very own book. Well, yes. Much like the, my the mime troupe from campus at Ball State University, mime uh, mime over matter. Uh, mime is built for puns. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, so mime very own book is a coffee table photo book full of pictorial puns. It's um, amazing. It's yeah, like yeah. a short film almost. Have you seen it? Yeah. I yeah. have. Yes. Oh yes. gosh, thank you. Uh, uh, yeah, the idea was birthed at a. I was I was a celebrity guest at at a, at a publisher's birth at a publisher's um, sort of like convention party. They were having a, like a, 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 a horror writers convention, and they had a, a, a vampire ball to kick the, kick the weekend off. I was a, a guest of the of the vampire ball, oh, wow. and a publisher from Chicago was there from Medallion Press. His name was Adam Mock. And he said, hey, can we, can you, I get a picture with you, Doug, for my kids? They love the Silver Surfer. Great. We posed. And he says, so is your background in like, uh, do you have like a, a, a mime background with all this movement that you do? And I'm like, yes, I do. And he goes, ah, oh, how would a mime write a book? Because, you know, he's a publisher. He's thinking writing. He's thinking, sure. he goes thinking, how do I, how do you, how do you capitalize on a mime as, as a publisher? <laughs> and I said, I, I don't think a mime would write a book. I think a mime would pose for a book. That's <laughs> what I said. Go. I think he would tell it in pictures. That's a great idea. So the president of Medallion Press came walking by, and we're in the lobby of a hotel in Burbank, California. Adam Mock says to her, um, hey, uh, uh, what do you think of this idea? A mime picture book for coffee tables. She points at him and she says, I like it. Done. So uh, to that start of the whole ball, uh, my... I, I suggested we bring in a friend of mine, Scott Perry. Scott Allen Perry is a, a writer-director person that, that does a lot of YouTube funny bits. Sure. Uh, and uh, so we brought him in as a conceptual uh, writer for these little images. And also, so he and Adam Mock collaborated on, on all of the ideas. Brought, Scott brought in his friend, uh, Eric Curtis, our photographer. So between... Adam, Scott, Eric, and I, we all share co-authorship of this book. Okay. Uh, so um, so uh, there's pictorial puns in there, everything from, uh, it's, po- it's a pop culture send-up. It's a, uh, we, we make fun of everything from movie posters, like uh, instead of uh, say anything with John Cusack, it's don't say anything with Mime Doug Jones. <laughs> uh, and, uh, we do the, uh, have a poster of the Little Mermime. We have a poster of uh, 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 the Miming instead of the Shining. Okay. We have a poster of uh, the Miminator. That's the one I'll I be remember. I'll be quiet. <laughs> um, we have, uh, oh golly, and then famous works of art like Venus de Mimelo and the Mima Lisa. Uh, and, the, oh, and, and me sitting in that, that thinker pose. Instead of the thinker, it's me on a yes. toilet. This is a stinker with my pants down. Yes. Uh, we also have, and then all, all the other, uh, there's a section of, of regular puns like we have we have mime over matter we have once upon a mime we have uh oh gosh mime uh, a meeting of the mimes a oh, one track yes. mime um yeah and one of my favorites was mime a llama ding dong <laughs> mime llama ding dong <laughs> and then there's the michael jackson section of the book that that's like, what that, i love oh my gosh to re, we uh, we recreated all those imagery of of like famous michael jackson poses with me as a mime instead mm-hmm. um and that we did uh, we called that section mima say mima sa mama kasa oh, <laughs> Nice. <laughs> yeah. I didn't. I didn't catch that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, 
-hmm. Very cool. I, I had a lot of fun on that. So much fun on that. I love the Beatles. Um, the Abbey Road cover. Yeah, yeah, Personally, yeah. I'm a huge Beatles fan, so I yes. love that. Yeah, and the, the, uh, the John, John Lennon. Lennon. The Yoko Ono pose. Yes. too. My, um, here's what happened when I got your book. Uh -huh. I'm usually against e-readers, okay? Uh -huh. And I thought, I didn't want to wait to go to the bookstore. It's like, I want to look at this thing now. No. So I downloaded it. Yeah. And um, I'm sitting there looking at it and realized that in the middle of the book, there was a flip book with you in the bottom right corner. The flip book was my idea. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to my, pat myself on the back for that. It was very neat. It would be funny to have a section where we... Sure. Uh, you flip it and it's about 40 pages of, of flipping where, where you see me pushing on a wall and pulling a rope or something like that and it, and it, it looks great it, it really it plays I sat there and uh, I timed my finger taps on the screen of the e-reader oh. so I could get you to do it as quick as I could but yeah, 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 yeah. just one more question okay. for you What's been the most rewarding moment for you in your 27 years, is it? Uh, 28 years. 28 years yeah, yeah. of um, acting, being a mime, being a contortionist. Uh, most rewarding moment for you? Uh, I see the most re rewarding moments for me are, are the after effects. Watching, watching uh, what, what effect a production you've been in has on the audience or has on an individual or has... Um, Moments like sitting at the Oscar Awards in 2007 wow. with, uh, you know, with Pan's Labyrinth had uh, six nominations and won three of, uh, awards at night, one of them being Best Makeup. Right. So my makeup team, DDT Efectos Especiales from Barcelona, Spain, you know, standing up there at the podium with Oscars in their hands making an acceptance speech. Uh, that wasn't my award, but I felt very much a part of that team that, that, that uh, and it was, it was, that's very rewarding. Um, uh, and because it was an award, it feels very rewarding. Sure. But on a more personal level, the, the, the little rewards I get every day are the, the fan reactions I get. And uh, when people contact me on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever, Instagram, right. to tell me, I love you so much, man. Uh, and and I, get, I get a lot of, um, a lot of uh, I think the, the movie... Uh, Pan's Labyrinth it would be a, a film that has had the most emotional staying power, it seems, uh, where I'll, I'll have a, a lot of, like, teenager, early 20-somethings, uh, uh, kids that ha have had a rough go of it. So they find something to connect with in Pan's Labyrinth. I can um, see that. And uh, so I've had every, everybody from, you know, a goth kid uh, somewhere else in the country that sends me a little note saying, you know, that, that that movie is something they, they clung on to to help them get through a hard time. Uh, that would be an amazing feeling. That's an amazing feeling. Yeah. Um, I, and uh, my favorite story ever was a young lady at a, at a convention I was at in, um, in uh, uh, Belgium. She came up to me, uh, was shaking at my table, and I, I grabbed her hands and said, is everything okay? And, I, and she had some scars around her wrists. And, so there was a lot of story there, and uh, her sure. sister had, had had been killed the year before, had been murdered the year before, and she had, so this this young lady had lost her will to live when her sister died, and she was feeling like you know why her, why it should have been me, uh, you know all those right. guilty feelings you feel when when a loved one goes, and and uh, and she said she was an artist herself, she was a, a painter and a singer, a dancer, an actress, and and, and lost her will to create art her, um, when her, when her sister died, so did her her will to live. Sure. Uh, 
And she said she went to the movie theater to see Pan's Labyrinth, and that's what brought her back again. That's what she went home from that movie so inspired by the relationship between the fawn and little Ophelia and had to look up who I was. You know, she wanted to know who the fawn was played by, and she went to found my website, thedougjonesexperience.com, and, yes. and she researched me, and she found out that I like dolphins. So there she's standing with, before me that, that day with a, a, a canvas rolled up under her one arm, and she said, I went home. Oh, I get emotional. Oh, it's oh. going to happen. It's going to happen. It's, it's gonna okay. Happen. Let, him, let, him, let the tears <laughs> flow. Just let him flow, baby. <laughs> so she said to me that she went home after she found out that I love dolphins, and she was inspired to paint for the first time in a year. And she painted this beautiful painting of four dolphins that were kind of like in this beautiful upward motion. It was a very hopeful looking p painting and it was a really good art. It was a gorgeous piece that she unrolled and said, this is yours. Wow. She was giving it to me. And, uh, and she said that that, you know, so to be a part of that story, to bring girl, a girl back from who was a walking zombie into wanting to live again and wanting to create art again. Um, and so I've, I've kept in touch with her over the years and she's, uh, She's uh, alive and well and happy and dating and, you know, uh, a, a very useful part of society. That's awesome. And uh, so, so to think that, uh, that a piece of art, a movie, can have that kind of influence on people, to uh, that's rewarding. That's rewarding. Oh, absolutely. That kind of thing happens constantly with me when at the convention circuit when I'm meeting people and I get somebody who's shaking and is nervous to meet me and tears up when they meet me and I can hug on them. And, and uh, and I hear stories about how they grew up watching Hocus Pocus and that oh, how great how, movie. Well, a girl just today here in, at the at Packrat Comics in Hilliard, Ohio, said uh, uh, she wanted me to sign her VHS copy of Hocus Pocus because that was <laughs> wow. the that was the VHS copy that her grandmother and she popped in. Oh God, I'm gonna do it again. This is terrible. You're fine, my friend. You're fine. Uh, that uh, that they, her, she and her grandmother would pop in and watch together every Halloween, and that was a tradition. And she lost her grandmother a year ago, and so oh. she so she breaks up in tears in front of me today. I'm like, oh, sweetie, it's okay, it's okay. So is it, you know, it's very lovely that I can be. Without even knowing these people, I can become a part of their family tradition. You know, and That's then they can awesome. tell me about it when I when I hear about these stories and hear that. That you know, uh, uh, family moments that brought them together. I was a part of them and didn't even know it. That's talk about rewarding. That's very rewarding. Yeah. yeah, indeed. Wow, amazing moment. That's awesome. Well, I think that's really all we have for okay. you today. But I wanted to thank you oh, so much. So much. Oh, well, thank you, you precious puppies. Thank <laughs> you so much for having me. It's, it's, been it's great to talk. It's been an experience. So thank you so yeah, much. Well, thanks for hanging out all day too. Oh, no problem oh, yeah. at all. Totally worth it. Yay. All right, everyone, and there was our interview with Doug Jones from May 3rd, 2014, Free Comic Book Day. This interview was originally in episode 29 of our catalog, and I think I'm going to end this episode the same way I ended that episode, with the Barry Manilow song, Can't Smile Without You. That was the song that Abe Sapien and Hellboy got drunk together to, and Hellboy to the Golden Army. There we go, that sounds more like it. Don't forget to visit our website, www.candairpodcast.com, where there's all kinds of stuff for you to do. You can listen to past episodes, you can uh, read up on past episodes, check out the Wall of Justice and the Hall of Heroes, uh, watch movie trailers, all kinds of goodies to do on there. Uh, find us on Twitter at CandairPod and on Instagram at Canned underscore Air and the YouTube page. A lot of stuff out there for you to check out. Also, if you're going to be attending the Cleveland Wizard World Comic Con, uh, February 26th, 27th and 28th 
keep an eye out for us the 27th Saturday at the con. We're going to be walking around his press, uh, just enjoying the con and interviewing people as uh, much as we can. So should you recognize us, uh, come tug on our sleeve, say hey, we'd love to hear from you. Stay tuned at the very end of this episode. Um, after our interview with Doug Jones, he humored me and sang with me the Mac Tonight theme song from the old McDonald's commercial. So I'm going to play that for you really quick. Uh, it was a lot of fun, and I hope you enjoy it. One thing you should know about it really quick, though, is I uh, took the original audio and sunk it up with a karaoke version of uh, Mac the Knife for this episode. So you're going to hear us kind of singing out a key, but that's only because I couldn't find a karaoke version that goes right with the key. So just so you know, we both know how to sing, especially Doug Jones, who is a fantastic singer. So don't let what you're about to hear be a representation of his actual singing voice, because it's not. So I'm just going to quit blabbering and get off here. So until next week, I am Jeremy Colley, and thanks for listening. strikes half past six babe time to head for the golden lights it's a good time for the great taste dinner at mcdonald's it's mac tonight come on make it mac tonight Hey, Joey, why don't you come over here and spray paint your name on the wall? But I don't wanna. What are you, chicken? Hold on there, boys. Whoa, it's Flint. Instead of writing your name, write cannedairpodcast.com and help spread the word. Well, that's a great idea. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe! I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.